I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. China. It's a country of one and a half billion people living in a vast landmass of 10 million square kilometers. An ancient civilization with a lineage of dynasties that can be traced back for 5,000 years. At times in that history, China has also been the most powerful nation in the world, dominating trade and technology. All that came to an end after punishing wars in the 19th century. But now, China stands once again as an important force to be reckoned with, a superpower. The Chinese Communist Party is conducting the largest military modernization effort in the country's history. A move the Pentagon believes is not only in preparation for taking Taiwan, but also for overtaking the United States as the world's leading superpower. For a long time after the Second World War, there were just two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, battling it out in the Cold War for dominance in the world order. The United States interested in new forms of empire, economic dominance. The Soviet Union bent on political dominance, control over entire countries. And all that came to an end in 1989 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. The end of history, suggested one optimist. The Biden administration calls China the most consequential strategic competitor for the United States now and for decades to come. One major source of tension, Taiwan. The island democracy is supported by the U.S., but China considers it a breakaway province and has vowed to use force, if necessary, to unify. And then along came China. With a war in Ukraine, a weakened Russia, it looks like the world order is changing once again. But what kind of superpower will China become? If democracy has many faces, what are the chances of democracy in China? Today on Ideas, a conversation and a talk with Joseph Wong, professor of political science at the University of Toronto. We're calling this program the Democratic Republic of China. So, uh... You've just co-authored with Dan Slater a book titled From Development to Democracy, The Transformations of Modern Asia. We're going to get to the book in the second half of the program through a talk that you gave at the Toronto Public Library. But we thought that in light of the geopolitical changes that seem to be engulfing us right now, and China possibly emerging as a major player in those changes, it would be useful to start with a more general discussion about China. So starting quite sort of at the bottom floor, what is it that makes China loom so large on the, on the international stage today and to be more a more important consideration than a country, say, like India, which is also large and populous? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and there's, there are several things I think we need to consider. First and foremost, uh, China just a half century ago was one of the poorer countries uh, in the world. And so what we've seen there is one of the most 
remarkable transformations um, of an economy, of a society, and of a polity, right? And um, and we all know the story. Of course, China is now the second largest economy in the world. I think also importantly, it's not just a, an economic powerhouse that's exporting to the rest of the world, but it's also a huge domestic market. And this is something I think that we need to really consider, right? In, in the sense that when you have 1.4 billion consumers, um, that only increases your economic power because now you are able to you know, set standards, you're able to set consumer standards and so forth. And therefore, we've seen Chinese manufacturers doing extremely well globally, but also doing extremely well domestically, which of course can help support uh, those industries. I think secondly, this is a, a regime and an economy uh, that w- we actually refer to in the book as a developmental socialist um, economy. And so it adheres to a set of different principles and ideologies that pits the regime in many ways against um, the West, right? And so in this growing competition between autocracy versus democracy, China and the West find themselves on opposite sides of that debate. So, you know, you have a regime that's very powerful economically and militarily and diplomatically, uh, and one that is on the other side as it relates to things like ideology and geopolitics. So then, again, very broadly speaking, how would you situate China kind of in the context of Asian countries? What is it that sets China apart or maybe makes it more part of the club? Well, China is huge, right? And so, um, whereas a few generations ago, the Asian regional economy was centered around Japan, today, the Asian economy, and by extension, the global economy, uh, is increasingly centered around China. And so, you know, you have a very powerful economy that, again, is determining where investments are flowing, determining in many ways what industry standards are, consumer standards are, and so forth. And so, you know, it it looms large. And uh, other economies around it, even very powerful ones like the South Korean economy or the Taiwanese economy or Singapore as an entrepot economy and so forth, and of course, even Japan, um, they're all sort of caught within the shadow of this really large, looming, powerful economy that is China's. You mentioned Japan. If we go back all the way to 1937, when Japan, you know, a a, a relatively small country then declared war, not just for the first time, but for the second time against a, a much bigger China. What does that tell us about the perception of China at the time? In the 1930s, China was uh, was very weak, um, and this is a, a country that had become increasingly embroiled in a civil war, and so you had, um, you know, you had essentially a country that was ungoverned or ungovernable. It was also one that was still largely agricultural. In fact, it stays that way well into the 1970s and into the 1980s, and so you know this was um, a very weak country. Now that being said, it was a very uh, and rightly so, proud country, very prideful. And so the Japanese occupation and invasion of China was seen as yet another example of where China had been wronged by imperialist powers from around the world. And so this anti-imperialist narrative is deeply entrenched in not only uh, modern Chinese history, but really in the origins 
of the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party was as much a regime about you know, how China ought to develop in terms of its economy and socially and so forth. It was as much a party about that as it was about being an anti-imperialist party and one that really looked to set China on a path of self-reliance. So, you know, the Japanese occupation of China was extremely impactful and the the conflict between the two countries endures to even today. Yeah, and and of course a lot has changed since that war between those two countries. You've started to there by talking about kind of the long-termism of, of the Communist Party and, and the way they were thinking about where China's place should be in the world. Can you talk about, can you paint a small picture of how China developed from that point, this, you know, more impoverished, less powerful country, to, to, to one that's become so geopolitically important? Well, the founding of the People's Republic of China occurs in 1949, and we see immediately an effort to develop an economy that was self-reliant. And so under Chairman Mao, you see an economy that unleashes, uh, you know, a socialist plan, uh, first with collectivization and then later with the further communization of both agricultural and industrial production. And, you know, this is relatively successful, the sort of first, the, the golden age, if you will, of early socialism in China during the 1950s. But China then experiences, you know, famine during the Great Leap Forward of the 1960s, and then really a turbulent political period of the Cultural Revolution between 1966 and 1976, when again, uh, which many Chinese will refer to as, you know, 10 years of chaos, uh, China becomes again ungovernable. It's really in the 1970s, in the late 1970s, under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, that China um, intentionally opens its doors. It's often referred to as the open door policy, where China now begins to embrace um, further integration to the global economy. You see, for instance, foreign direct investment essentially rising from almost zero in the early 1970s to making China soon thereafter one of the most um, integrated economies or increasingly integrated economies into the regional and global economic community. And there you, you, you really do see the takeoff of China's economic development. And then I think the next phase really occurs in the 1990s. So in the post-Tiananmen era, uh, post-1989, beginning in the early 1990s, Deng Xiaoping participates in what's called the Great Southern Tour, in which he essentially expounds uh, this view that China needs to further open and that it needs to further embrace market reforms and so forth, while maintaining still a very strong presence in some key industrial sectors. And so it's this dual track of sort of state planning uh, and also market regarding economic policies that contributes to, you know, what becomes just in it, just astronomical growth and deep, deep industrialization And as we've seen in more recent years, real investments into high-tech development and, uh, you know, a move into some of the most valuable, high-value-add industrial sectors. So, you know, it's it's an extraordinary trajectory, actually, and and one that I think a lot of countries look to with great envy. But it's something that uh, I think, you know, the Chinese Communist Party uh, will take a lot of credit for uh, in steering China's economy from poverty to the current riches that it that it enjoys. So it's one thing to become an, an economic superpower, 
But at what stage, at what, at what point do you think it crossed over into becoming a geopolitical superpower like the United States and the Soviet Union? Yeah, I think, you know, emerging in the 2000s, you see China becoming much more intentional in terms of its foreign policy. You know, it had always in the early 2000s expounded a, a a philosophy of China's peaceful rise, right? And so it was very deliberate in saying that, you know, China's rise is something that is its to cherish, but it's also something that will benefit the entire global economy and that it should be allowed to develop peacefully and that it uh, didn't have any designs on, you know, restructuring the international order. In fact, the international order was something that really benefited China. So it's a session, for instance, to the World Trade Organization and its increasing presence in other international organizations were all things that were part of this um, peaceful rise and this peaceful development. Uh, I think in more recent years, especially under the uh, leadership of the current President Xi Jinping, You've seen you've seen a change, right? Um, you've seen uh, a further consolidation of political power um, within Xi and his inner circle. This was counter to the kinds of trends that we had been witnessing in the prior regimes, where it looked like there was a little bit of a loosening of political power. There certainly was a loosening in terms of. Um, Chinese society. So this was a period in which, you know, there was more dissent and it was more tolerated. And certainly civil discourse and civic discourse was becoming much more open and citizens and citizen groups were testing the bounds of what the state would tolerate. That all really changes under the Xi Jinping era. And so, you know, there's now a real effort, it seems, under uh, President Xi to position China as a superpower, certainly as a regional power. I mean, I think that's without question now, but increasingly a global power that is challenging in many ways some of the international norms. It's challenging what was presumed to be uh, U.S. dominance. Uh, it's becoming increasingly brazen in some of its challenges as well. And so what were once faint signals of a more assertive Chinese regime, I think, has become quite clear in terms of how China views itself. The Canadian government in its own recent Indo-Pacific strategy has referred to China as a disruptive power. And so I think that characterization is, um, you know, I think it captures what a lot of people are perceiving China's rise to be these days. There's a lot more to say about the current situation, but I just want to st stay a bit further back for a moment 1989, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, what does that do in terms of spheres of influence for China? I think going back to 1989, I mean, in retrospect now, we can see how what was once a bipolar international order had become one in which uh, the United States was the sole remaining superpower, which has since, you know, become clear as an invitation for another rival superpower to emerge, which I think most people would agree is China. But going back to 1989 and putting ourselves in that year, I'm not so sure that we would have been so confident because China in 1989 was actually a very poor country. But soon thereafter, uh, and the reforms that are made and the consolidation of the regime 
uh, under Deng Xiaoping and then subsequent leaders in China, it's quite clear that that is an inflection point, even if we didn't know it at the time. Today, the war in Ukraine, of course, is challenging Russia's significance on the international arena. And, and you know, at the moment, Russia actually seems to be at least temporarily weakened. We talk about a new world order uh, often. If, if that includes a weakened Russia and a stronger China, what can we expect a new balance of power to look like? Well, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, the sort of unipolar world in which we had a, uh, you know, an, an essentially uncontested American dominance is shifting or has shifted. Part of this is the rise of China, its growing sphere of influence. And, you know, the United States and the West more generally have not fared particularly well. I think that the isolationist impulse, you know, the presentation of the United States, the world stage as increasingly, you know, repugnant doesn't do a lot for the West and the U.S. in terms of its own soft power and its popularity and its legitimacy as a global leader. And so, you, you know, you're seeing the decline of one superpower and you're seeing the rise uh, of another. Um, now, for many, particularly scholars of in- realist scholars of international relations, they see these kinds of moments as potentially, you know, moments for conflict and increased conflict when you have a declining hegemon and a rising challenger, historically, realists will tell you that this is uh, a situation that is more conducive to conflict. So, you know, for many of us, our hope is that we can avoid that. Our hope is that we can continue to engage civilly with uh, with China and Chinese leaders, increase a kind of web of a web of interdependence, so that we are reliant on each other for our own uh, mutual and shared prosperity, and hopefully that will lead to more peaceful outcomes. So, reaching back to history again, at the end of the nineteenth century marked the end of 5,000 years of monarchy in China and a period of kind of reimagining, you know, what, what a new China might look like. In your book, you mark 1919 as being a significant year, one in which through the May 4th movement, you say Chinese intellectuals envisioned a more self-reliant, more powerful, more democratic China. And as we've discussed, of course, that it's become more self-reliant, it's become more powerful, but what happened to the idea of Chinese democracy? That's a terrific question. You're absolutely right. One of the reasons why we go back to 1919 in the book is to show that the idea of democracy is not incompatible with the earliest visions of what a modern China might look like. We really wanted to be sure that you know the argument that democracy is incompatible with Chinese culture or that democracy is incompatible uh, with, um, you know, with a modern China. It's just simply not true. In fact, um, some of the most influential philosophers and thought leaders at that time were incredibly sympathetic to what democracy might be able to bring. I think over the last century, you know, and it has been over a century now, we've seen that idea really lose its currency. First, you see a China that is 
basically ungovernable in the 1930s, which invites a strong autocratic regime to take over the sort of reins of power. We see uh, a Chinese Communist Party that demonstrates extraordinary success in facilitating, again, you know, one of the most remarkable transformations in human history in terms of turning a poor country into now the second largest economy in the world, right, which only further legitimates this autocratic hand in Chinese in Chinese politics. And, and increasingly now we see a showdown between the West and China rooted in part in ideological terms, but also in just straight up realist or real politic geopolitical terms. And so whereas there may in fact be some people who are very sympathetic to a more democratic Chinese future, the geopolitical contest now between the West and China, the rivalry uh, between these two camps, I think really make it even more difficult for what was once you know, a real vision, a real viable vision for China's future back in 1919, even the founding of the Republic of China before that, I think it makes that vision less and less tenable. But there's no sense in which, you know, perhaps in China, there's an, a, an idea of democracy that is different than what we can conceive of the West and might argue that it, it exists at some level. It's just we don't recognize it because we have a very specific idea of what democracy is. Yeah, I mean that's fair. Um uh but I mean I, I mean I I think there's there's a, a, a you know it's it's important to recognize that no two democracies are alike. It's important to recognize that democracy has to really reflect specific contexts. But I also think that the whole concept of democracy loses its currency if it can accommodate everything. Uh and so I think there has to be some conceptual lines drawn around what constitutes a democracy and actually in our book we take a very minimalist definition of democracy, which some people have actually criticized, right? Because we take a, we take a very, what political scientists will refer to as a kind of procedural definition of democracy. We're very clear in saying our book doesn't really help us in understanding the ensuing quality of a democracy that might emerge, right? We're really focused on, you know, leveling the political playing field. And part of that includes free and fair elections or freer and fairer elections. But that the quality of democracy is going to vary across different societies depending on the specific rules. So we're quite comfortable in saying that this procedural minimalist conceptualization of democracy, a more level playing field, a more level political playing field, um, is, is at its core what democracy is about. All the rest, I think, is very much contextual. It's very much going to be informed by the historical development of a specific society and so forth. But I don't think there's anyone who would say that the current situation in China meets that minimal, minimalist conception of democracy. And, you know, and so therefore we're quite comfortable. And in fact, I think Chinese people are quite comfortable in saying um, that if those are the conceptual baselines, then China today is not a democracy. Just as a final thing, as you're wrapping up your book, you say you write that democracy may very well be a universal value, but nowhere in the world is democracy the ultimate value. Can you just kind of tend off here, explain what you meant by that? You know, what are the ultimate values and, and how they apply to China? So the reason why we say that is we just want to be sure that the reader understands that democracy 
at least as we've conceptualized in this book, is not just simply a Western phenomenon, right? That this is something that has appeal to everyone, potentially, around the world. Uh, and in all our travels and in all our research and so forth, I've not found much evidence of anyone saying that they like to be repressed. And I don't mean to be flip about it, but I mean, I think that there, you know, I think that we need to be very clear that actually people, human beings, seek the kinds of freedoms that democracy brings. So we're very comfortable in saying that democracy is a universal value, but it may not be the ultimate one in the sense that, again, democracy needs to be able to deliver development. And the ultimate value for people is that they live a dignified life, that they live a life where they are able to uh, be healthy, where they're able to generate income and, and, and wealth, that they're able to share in that in their societies and so forth. That's the ultimate value. And hence, we argue that democracy's future depends as much on the decisions of elite leaders as it depends on democracy to deliver development. And so the greatest threat moving forward is the betrayal or the unfulfillment, if you will, of that ultimate value of you know prosperity and peace and, and, and stability. If we can't bring that, then democracy is, is, is under threat. And I think we are seeing that um, around the world. Really great to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's terrific speaking with you as well. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. In the middle of the 19th century, China came under attack from without and within. Fatally weakened by wars with Britain, France and Japan, by rebellions and revolts, and a devastating famine, a 5,000-year monarchy collapsed into years of turmoil and instability. The modern country begins in 1949 with the People's Republic of China. Today, China is a global superpower, and the world is in flux. The United States, Russia, China. What will be the balance of power after the war in Ukraine? And what kind of superpower will China be? What are the chances of democracy in China? For the second part of our program that we're calling the Democratic Republic of China, here's Joseph Wong and a talk he gave at the Toronto Reference Library about the possibility of democracy in China, based on his recent book, co-authored with Dan Slater, From Development to Democracy, The Transformations of Modern Asia. 
Terrific. Thank you so much. The stakes of this debate between autocracy and democracy could not be any more dire, and the stakes could not be any greater than they are today. As the showdown between autocracy and democracy looms ever larger, as democracies demonstrate their fragility almost on a daily basis, and the specter of autocracy continues to confound global order as well as our very theories of development and democracy. Indeed, as we look around in the news these days, the opinion pages and the news are replete with stories about political instability in China. We have observers who are looking for the seeds of the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party regime in China as a harbinger of democratic reform to come. The stakes couldn't be higher because what we're looking for is for democracy to emerge from the ashes of a collapsed regime, which would be calamitous to humanity and of course to the 1.4 billion people living in China. So how did this book begin? It actually begins with an experience I had in 2000. In 2000, I was a finishing PhD student. I was just about to start my job at U of T as an assistant professor, and I had the opportunity to be a part of an election observer team. And I have since participated in these ob observations uh, in Taiwan over the last 22 years. And in 2000, I was part of an election observer team, and I happened to be with my doctoral advisor, Professor Edward Friedman at the time, who was a fierce challenge, uh, champion of democracy, who had been blacklisted by the autocratic regime in Taiwan for decades. And we were at the election in 2000, and it was the election night in which, for the first time, an opposition candidate, Chen Shui-bian, won the election. And won the election peacefully and was about to assume political power. And I remember being at the rally, and these rallies in Taiwan are raucous events. It's really quite crazy. It's a lot of fun. And President-elect Chen Shui-bian was being escorted onto the stage. And I looked to my advisor, and he had a tear in his eye. I said, Ed, why are you, why are you crying? And he said, you know, the irony that the security apparatus that had once jailed and imprisoned this political activist was now securing him as he made his ascent to the presidency. And this was significant because what we see here is actually democracy emerging not from the ashes of a collapsed regime, but actually an autocratic regime that had conceded democracy. It's the same autocratic regime that had jailed these political prisoners that were now safeguarding their passage to the presidency. In 1986, in Taiwan, a group of activists, opposition activists, formed illegally at the time the opposition party, the Democratic Progressive Party, or the DPP. And it was illegal at the time because Taiwan was still under martial law at that time. And all of the observers of Taiwanese politics and Asian politics just assumed that this autocratic regime, which was by every measure one of the most autocratic regimes imaginable, everyone assumed that this autocratic regime would simply crush and clamp down on the formation of this political party. But it didn't. And indeed, in 1987, this regime lifted martial law. In 1992, we see supplementary elections. 
1996, we see founding presidential elections, and it takes us to 2000, where we see the first turnover and peaceful turnover of political power. This was remarkable not only for the personal anecdote that I shared, it was remarkable because this was a regime that was not on the verge of collapse. This was a strong autocratic regime. Taiwan's economy was booming at the time. It was not in a moment of economic crisis. In other words, it was a strong political economic regime that conceded democracy. And conceded democracy not on the verge of collapse, but rather when the regime was strong. Can we imagine the Chinese Communist Party conceding democracy in this way? Can we imagine a strong CCP conceding democracy in precisely this way? Modernization theory is a long-standing theoretical tradition in the social sciences, which contends that development and the transformation that comes with development, the social, the political, and the economic transformation that comes from development, leads to democratic transition. And indeed, this book is a book that chronicles the process of development in Asia. Indeed, the very first paragraph of the book reads, economic development is Asia's inescapable fact. Imagine a seasoned Asia traveler from the early 1970s being catapulted 50 years forward in time to any Asian city in the present day. Whether they touched ground in Tokyo, Seoul, Hong Kong, Singapore, Shanghai, Taipei, or even Hanoi, Jakarta, Bangkok, or Kuala Lumpur, there is simply no question what transformation would strike them first. One of the world's poorest regions has become one of its richest. The main argument in the book is that in Asia, stable democratic transformation has not emerged from the ashes of a collapsed regime, but rather the modal pathway for democratic transformation and stable democratic transformation in Asia is a process that Dan and I call democracy through strength. And this is the paradox that we exploit in the book because these regimes are precisely those regimes that are strong enough to resist democratization, as we have seen, but also have the strength to concede democracy and to concede stable democracy. The book begins with two contrasting narratives. And the first story we tell is the story of the Philippines, which is a classic example of what we describe as democracy through weakness. This is a story of collapsism. This is a story of the Marcos regime that collapses under the weight of its own illegitimacy. It's a regime in which the autocratic leader has to flee the country because his legitimacy had run its course. This is the classic case of what we refer to as democracy through weakness, and indeed, the rocky shoals of democratic transformation in the Philippines has suggested that this has been far from the kind of stable democratic transition that we would optimally like to see. We contrast this with the classic story of democracy through strength. And here is a picture of No Te Wu, who is now uh, being sworn in as president. He's a general. And he's a general that was affiliated and associated, and in fact, one of the leading political lieutenants of the prior military autocratic regime in South Korea. But it was a regime that in the summer of 1987, in the face of continual protests, concedes democratic reform, concedes democratic elections in December of 1987, and full and free presidential elections in the spring of 1988. Two contrasting stories of how authoritarianism ends 
and how democracy might emerge. One is a story in which the autocratic regime ends through collapse and calamity, and another story in which authoritarianism ends when the incumbent authoritarian regime concedes democracy and becomes a democratic regime and contests democratic elections thereafter. Then a contemplation of China. Should we be contemplating a democratic future for China that emerges with the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party regime? Or can we imagine a democratic future in China in which it adheres to a pattern of democracy through strength? And the argument we make at the end of the book for normative reasons is that we should hope for a democracy through strength scenario because this tends to lead to more stable democratic transitions and as I've already intimated for very humanitarian reasons. We should also hope for a democracy through strength scenario because this is one in which we can avoid the human humanitarian calamities that would come with such a collapse. The implications of this are not trivial, however, because then when we think about democracy promotion around the world and when we indeed think about democracy promotion in China, demonizing the regime does no good. Rather, what is essential is demonstrating to the autocratic regime that democracy and development can go hand in hand, and indeed, uh, and forgive me for being very political sciencey here, that democracy is incentive compatible with the interests of the autocratic regime. Now, this is a big book. It really is a journey through the entire Asia region. And as, as with any big book, and when you have two authors who think they know a lot about a region, you have to make choices. And so Dan and I spent a lot of time as, uh, as co-authors debating about the kinds of authorial choices that we wanted to make. The first is, is that we chose to feature Japan as the first case study. Now, Japan is actually not the best case study. The paradigmatic example of democracy through strength, as I've already described to you, actually is Taiwan. But we chose to do Japan because in many ways it was the most counterintuitive example. The conventional wisdom around democracy and democratization in post-war Japan is that it is in many ways the consummate case of democracy through weakness. After all, this is a country and a regime that had suffered defeat at the end of World War II. The conventional wisdom sees that democracy was externally imposed by the American occupation. And in our analysis, we concede all of these things. Of course, this is historical empirical fact. The American occupation had an extraordinary influence in how Japan politically developed. The end of the war and the war itself had an extraordinary influence on the kind of political economy that we would see emerge from World War II. But we also make the argument that there were in fact political conservatives and political parties that had emerged during the Taisho period of democracy of the 1920s and 30s that had in many ways survived World War II and became the institutional basis upon which democracy was grafted thereafter. When the US occupation leadership first asked the Japanese interim government in 1945 to draft a constitution, the constitution that they drafted was basically a copy of the authoritarian Meiji constitution. These were not Democrats. When given the choice to craft their own future democratic constitution, they hewed to the historical autocratic constitution that had gotten them into the mess that they were in in the first place. 
It was only then that the Americans drafted the Constitution in 1946, which was, of course, later adopted by the Japanese democracy. But the point that we make in the book is that over time, democracy became incentive compatible to these conservatives. The reverse course of 1947, which was a reverse course in American foreign policy in the region, saw, for instance, the American political forces and American military forces at the time starting to clamp down on the left. This was good for the conservatives in Japan. Beginning in 1948, the American occupation began to allow the reformation of the industrial combines. This was good for the conservatives in Japan. In other words, democracy proved to be incentive compatible for the conservatives in Japan, and indeed by 1955, had consolidated into what is now known as the Liberal Democratic Party, or the LDP, which then subsequently ruled Japan for nearly four decades. Democracy worked for these former autocrats. And there's no denying that Japan has been a robust democracy ever since. The second choice we made is around China on uh, democracy avoidance in China. We were essentially trying to explain why China had rejected democracy in 1989 in the wake of the Tiananmen Square crackdown and or massacre, and why it continues to resist democracy today. We began to think, you know, the reason why the Chinese Communist Party in 1989 resisted democracy, not, it was not because this was an autocratic regime, but rather it was a regime that was too weak to concede. We often now think of the Chinese Communist Party as this omnipresent and omnipotent political party, but if you think back to 1989, it was really half a generation removed from the Cultural Revolution. This was an economy that was predating the 1992 Southern Tour and the 1993 economic reforms where China's economy really takes off. In other words, in 1989, the CCP was a weak party presiding over a relatively weak economy. And so with the benefit of hindsight now, when we look back and we look at the historical data and we look at the archives and we look at the records, particularly party records at the time, indeed there is striking evidence to suggest that the party chose not to concede democracy because it simply lacked the strength to do so. We finished the book, however, by contemplating China today. And the argument that we make, of course, is that China today and the Chinese Communist Party is a prime candidate for a democracy through strength scenario. If the Chinese Communist Party were to convene founding elections right now, there is no way that the CCP would lose those elections. Although if we wait six more months, it might be a different situation. What I've shared with you are um, some analytical narratives that uh, really make up the book. But there is a theory that drives this book. And it's a theory that speaks directly to the conventional wisdom in what we call in political science, transitology theory. It is an industry, an invariable industry of scholarship within political science, trying to explain when and why regimes democratize. The conventional wisdom suggests that democracies emerge through weakness. What are the characteristics of a democracy through weakness scenario? It's one, for instance, in which the autocratic regime collapses. It collapses under the weight of its own illegitimacy, like the Philippines. These regimes turn to democracy only as a last resort. It's an act of desperation. Oftentimes, it involves a series of negotiations for the outgoing autocratic 
leader so that he and his followers don't end up in jail or worse yet, dead. Under these scenarios, these autocratic regimes are not just conceding democracy. They are, by design, conceding defeat. They oftentimes negotiate their exit. They anticipate their future obsolescence. Regimes concede democracy, and weak regimes concede democracy due to the threat of revolution. They're only going to give up power when the threat of revolution becomes so overpowering that they feel they have no other choice. That's the conventional wisdom, democracy through weakness. Our theory of democracy through strength is in many ways the exact opposite of this. These are not regimes that are on the verge of collapse. These are not weak regimes, but rather these are strong regimes presiding over strong economies. These are regimes that have tremendous amounts of credibility. In many instances, they're actually quite popular. It's inconceivable that without their leadership that the economy would continue to be stable. In a democracy through strength scenario, we see autocratic regimes preemptively choosing a democratic pathway, not when they're weak, not when they're about to be ousted, not on the verge of collapse. They preemptively choose democracy precisely when they're strong. And indeed, as we argue, they unleash a series of reversible experiments, as we saw, for instance, in Myanmar. Reversible is critical because when things don't go well, you can always clamp down again. And you can revert back to authoritarianism. But what is absolutely critical is that whereas in a democracy through weakness scenario, it's the threat of revolution that compels a regime to democratize. In our scenario, it's the expectation of stability. That the incumbent expects that with democratic transition, the political order remains stable, the economy remains stable, and society remains stable. And this is in many ways very counterintuitive to how we oftentimes think of democratization. And again, I point to all of the popular writing out there now looking for the seeds of the CCP's collapse in China as the harbinger of democracy to come, as though that's the only possible pathway. And the argument we're making here is that it is indeed not the only pathway. In other words, the expectation of stability on the part of these autocratic regimes means that they're confident regimes. Regimes that lack confidence are the ones that we should be scared about. Confident regimes are ones that believe that through their record of economic development, they have a sufficient track record, a credible track record, something that they can draw on to appeal to voters to say, look, we were an autocratic regime for decades, but we delivered 10% growth for every year for three decades. We are now going to become a democratic regime. You should vote for us. In other words, it's a regime and it's a political party that is confident that it would win, and we call this victory confidence. The ability of these autocratic regimes over time as well to reduce poverty and to foster and facilitate economic development also gives them stability confidence. And it's the combination of victory confidence, i.e., if we were to have free and fair democratic elections, we'd win. And the combination of that with stability confidence, i.e., if we were to have democratic elections, we would win. And society, the economy, and the polity would remain stable is precisely the duo confidence that's required for this type of uh, scenario to emerge. Now, I want to be very clear that strength and confidence alone does not predict stable democratic transitions. 
China is a terrific case in point. You have a very strong regime, and you have, by most measures, or until recently, a very confident regime. So the fact of strength and confidence alone do not predict a stable democratic transition. Ultimately, it's a choice. Jiang Jingguo, who was the autocrat in Taiwan, chose in 1986 not to repress the opposition political party and to lift martial law. No Tae-woo, in the summer of 1987, chose not to repress the protesters in Seoul, but rather to concede democratic transition. They ultimately chose a democratic pathway and a democracy through strength scenario because they had received signals that notwithstanding the accumulation of historical strengths or what we call antecedent strengths, they were nonetheless past the apex of their political power. And this is really critical. And these signals can be a variety of signals. They could be economic signals. The economy starts to slow. Not that the economy is tanked, but it's starting to slow. It could be an electoral signal. Authoritarian regimes have elections as well. It's just that the one party wins every time and there may not be another political party. But electoral signals also demonstrate waning popularity. Contentious politics, protest, particularly mass mobilization is another example of a kind of signal. Or geopolitical signals, losing, for instance, a superpower patron as both Taiwan and South Korea did in the 1980s. These are all signals that the otherwise still very strong autocratic regime had passed their apex of power. And it's by reading those signals that in some instances, autocrats will choose to change their strategy and they will choose to concede democracy. And the book, all nearly 400 pages, has lots of evidence bearing this out in terms of how regimes read these signals, interpreted them, and change their strategy moving forward. That being said, there are also lots of regimes that read the signals incorrectly, don't see the signals, or ignore them. And when that happens, the autocratic regime has no choice but to hang on to political power through autocratic means, and oftentimes that leads to disastrous outcomes over the long term. The first conclusion that I think is uh, one that I want to stress is that developmental Asia is not uniquely ill-suited for democratization, as many cultural essentialists will argue, as though Asians are somehow incapable of practicing democracy. But rather, in fact, distinctly well-suited for democracy through strength. That precisely because, as I noted at the very beginning of this talk, this is a region that has become transformed. It is a developmental success. It's a miracle. The second conclusion that I want to draw is that developmental records and the long history of economic and social development and the structural transformations that come with it set the stage for what is potentially either a stabilizing democratic transition or a destabilizing one. Development is critical. We don't want to deny that. Right? There is a reason why developmental successes are more likely to become democratic successes. The third conclusion that I want to stress here, and it is really important, and that is that conceding democracy is not tantamount to conceding defeat. In fact, the opposite. Oftentimes, the way in which we conventionally think of democratic transition is that by conceding democracy, you're necessarily conceding your political obsolescence. You're necessarily conceding 
your defeat. What we argue in this book, in fact, is that by conceding democracy from a position of strength, you're not at all conceding defeat, and in fact, you are likely to retain political power. And you're likely to retain political power as a democratic party, and one in which we see continued stability. Which then leads to the last point that I want to stress, and that is that demonizing and marginalizing authoritarian regimes is not likely to instigate democratic transition, or at least stable democratic transition. Rather, democracy promotion ought to focus on the compatibility of democracy and development. That authoritarian regimes that have predicated their hold on power on their ability to deliver development can continue to deliver development even under democratic con conditions. In closing, I just want to say the stakes of the conversation cannot be overstated at this time. Not just in terms of these autocracies themselves and the people living within these autocracies, and indeed those who are living in fragile democracies, but that the implications and the stakes are also global in scope. And so I hope uh, this talk and this book is a way of imploring the global community to see, to recognize alternative pathways to democratic transition and democratic futures, that collapsism, as we call it, is not the only way in which democracy can emerge. And I also hope that the autocrats out there who might see this as a playbook for their own political survival over the longer term is to implore autocrats that development and democracy are not just possible, but indeed they're incentive compatible, that they're mutually reinforcing, not just theoretically, but as we've demonstrated this in this book, empirically the case as well. Thank you very much. On Ideas, you've been listening to The Democratic Republic of China, an interview with the University of Toronto political science professor Joseph Wong and a talk he gave about the chances of democracy in China. Our thanks to Sergio Elmir and his staff at the Toronto Reference Library for their assistance in recording the lecture. Many thanks also to Sanjay Ruparelia at the Toronto Metropolitan University. This program was produced by Philip Coulter. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The technical producer for Ideas is Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayad. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.